Are you a gig worker or self-employed? Womply has helped over 100,000 small businesses get a PPP stimulus loan, and you may qualify for up to $41,000 in 100% forgivable loans. The program ends soon and funds are limited. Apply now at womply.com slash apply. That's W-O-M-P-L-Y dot com slash apply. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. you're free on this oops let me bring my microphone closer that would help right <clears throat> typing before the show started hey there i'm leslie marshall happy friday thank god it's friday and i'm so grateful uh to have all of you listening to us on radio on stream on podcast watching us on youtube live facebook live uh periscope on twitter or per- twitter's live periscope and uh also uh linkedin live and if uh not linkedin live it's coming because uh, i know that we're uh, in process to do that or we're done Uh, So thank you for listening, thank you for watching, and thank you for supporting uh, this program and progressive voices like mine, uh, Leslie Marshall. It's a sunny day here in Los Angeles, weather patterns of west to east. I had some nasty cold and uh, rainy temps that are probably going to hit you guys with snow on the east coast uh, in a few days, uh, if you haven't already got that now. But it is Friday, and I'm so glad to have with us Scott Paul. He's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And, you know, the AAM is a partnership that was established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. And for over a decade, Scott and the AAM have worked to make American manufacturing a top-of-mind issue for voters and our national leaders through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR strategy. More than a pleasure to have back on the show, Scott Paul, friend of mine, friend of the show. Scott, I was uh, listening to uh, uh, what Kai Rizdahl on uh, NPR. He does this economic program, and I don't always listen because I'm not, just like we were talking off the air, sports, uh, I'm not that good with. Stock market, numbers, math, not that good with. And um, he, he was talking about manufacturing. He goes, manufacturing, looking good. And then I got to my destination. I had to get out of the car. But I did think of you, and uh, good to have you with us uh, today. Um, But we have a lot to talk about. And uh, the first thing I want to start with today in talking to you is free trade. Um, And uh, explain for people who don't understand manufacturing or trade lingo um, what free trade is and um, why at one time it was considered holy, if you will, or holier than thou inside the Beltway maybe isn't anymore. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And it's very relevant to a lot that has happened this week uh, that I know that we'll get to the U.S.-China talks. Uh, Catherine Tai was uh, confirmed by the Senate uh, as the uh, first Asian-American uh, United States trade ambassador who we've had. She's a good friend and she's a she's a friend of working people, which is fabulous. Um And the issue in the past has been that both Democrats and Republicans have kind of adhered to this idea of free trade like it was some sort of religion, that you had to have faith in it, that you couldn't question it, (laughs) and that it was the dogma. And on paper, you know, it, it is great. It's fabulous. You know, 
you give us bananas, we give you airplanes, everybody's better off because we're, we're you know, and, and that's sort of the theory that people are taught uh, in high school and college. But in the real world, there's lots of other things going on. There are countries that own companies, so you're not participating in a free market, really. There's countries that manipulate their exchange rates to make things more expensive or less expensive. Uh, there's all sorts of trade barriers that are put up. There are countries that have disparate working conditions. You know, in the United States and Europe, we pay relatively high wages, uh, and our workers have the right to collectively bargain, and there's health care, et cetera. In some developing countries, that isn't always the case. And so that may also uh, put our firms, our workers at a disadvantage. And so trade policy in the past has been governed by this philosophy. And, and these other issues just didn't want to deal with. Uh, but now we have so much experience with the downsides of this. I and mean, we saw a lot of factories close after NAFTA was passed in 1993 and automo automotive production uh, ended up migrating to Mexico, but Mexican workers weren't better off either. Their, their wages were still suppressed, and it, 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 the, the theory really didn't work there. And then China came out. Everybody said, let's, let's get into China. And if China does kind of a free trade philosophy, it will also become more democratic. And we've tried that for a couple of decades, and that certainly hasn't worked. In fact, kind of the reverse has happened there. And it is true that the, 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 you know, tens of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty in China, but they don't have the right to change their government. They don't have the right to really collectively bargain independently. Environmental standards are still uh, really, really poor. Uh, we've seen incidents uh, lately that we know include prison labor, child labor, slave labor. And all of this is really abhorrent. Uh, and again, our, our again our, our trade policy from both Democrats, Republicans, from Clinton to Bush to Obama, uh, really ignored uh, a lot of this. And so, you know, Trump obviously shook things up, uh, and he did it in a very chaotic way. Uh, but Biden said, "Look, I'm not going to go back to the way Obama did things. I'm certainly not going to do the way Trump did things with that chaos." Uh, as well, and also the, jingo, the jingoism, the nativism, all that stuff that was very harmful. But I am going to chart a different course here, and we're going to be tough. We're going to put workers at the center of our trade policy, and we're going to look at results. We're not going to look at philosophy. And so this, this debate has been a long time coming, and we've been trying to usher it along. And if you had to ask me like a year ago, is Joe Biden going to be the guy who changes trade policy in the United States? I would say there is not a chance that that is going to happen because it was very traditional. But I think that he has a good set of advisors. He's looked around him, particularly in the industrial Midwest, and has seen the consequences of all of these in these factory towns. And I know you know them as well, Leslie, yeah. you know, like Cleveland and Buffalo and kind of what's happened there. And, and you can't ignore that. And so, you know, I think Democrats are charting a different course on this. And yes, they'll want to open markets overseas. Uh, they'll want to have a philosophy that's kind of like that. But at the same time, I think they're also going to want to protect these values like environmental protection, workers' rights, making sure that our factories aren't closing down and moving overseas. Uh, just, you know, no matter what the philosophy tells them to do, I think they're going to look at the results and they're going to chart a different course. And I am personally very excited about that. And people who care deeply about jobs in our country, and about working people in, in this country, I think this is a transformational moment 
because it's not this Trumpy version, which is very nationalistic, which is very jingoistic. But this is about putting working people uh, or or an or, or a value like environmental protection or human rights uh, at the center of an economic policy, and we haven't seen that uh, in the country for a very very long time. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about so many things uh, when you were talking um, uh, to ask you. And I didn't want to jump in or interrupt, but here, you know, one, like you said, I, I would agree with you. You wouldn't think Joe Biden would be the guy, especially because a lot of people thought it was it was going to be kind of an Obama two administration. Right. Especially with issues like trade. Um, but Joe Biden is from Scranton. And Scranton is one of those towns like a Buffalo, like a Cleveland, like a Pittsburgh. He knows this well. One, two. You know, I, I think people. Uh, have underestimated myself included a bit, uh, you know, with Joe Biden, because, you know, he, he has his agenda. He has the voters agenda. And there were some things he'll take from the Obama administration. But there are a couple of times he very much disagreed with President Obama, even though President Obama won because he's president. Um, and, and I agree with you, you know, we're seeing, you know, something uh, different with regarding, uh, you know, with regard to trade, especially free trade. When people fully understand, like you said, I give you apples, you give me peanut butter or whatever. Um, you know, another thing that we forget is what's the quality of what we're giving them versus the quality of what we're we're getting. It's it's not really a level playing field. So it's not free trade, right? Because yeah. something something gets messed up along the way. Whether it's that worker who's working in an inhumane environment, right? Um, whether it is the pollution being put into our air because there's not regulations at that. A manufacturing plant overseas that's producing something there, trading out with us. Um, maybe we could do it here, make it here, make it better ourselves. I mean, the list goes on. So um, I, I agree with you. You know, if if it's if it's not broken, don't fix it. But this is broken, and it has been broken for a long time. And it's just amazing that you know we keep doing this, and we're getting the short end of the stick, especially when you look at the quality or lack of uh, for products that come from yep. places like China. Yeah, and other countries. Absolutely. Just just a very quick, a very quick example of that. Think of t-shirts. And everybody takes cheap t-shirts for granted. They make Walmart, they make HM a lot of money. Uh, but there is a cost that is not incorporated into the price that all of us pay for that. It starts with the cotton that comes from Western China that's picked and processed by Uyghurs who are basically held at, at and forced to do this work. And then it's put on a boat that has some of the most polluting fuel known to mankind and makes its way across the Pacific Ocean uh, and then arrives at our shores. And it's made by people who are paid very low wages. And then we're like, oh, great, we get a $5 T-shirt, but there's no factory in our town. Uh, and, and there's been devastation along the way. And I think there's more of an understanding about that, that we all play a part in this, workers, consumers, producers, the government, uh, and that we have, to, we, we have to have a different approach than we've had in the past. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Go to their website, American Man oh, excuse me, AmericanManufacturing.org. I did say that. On Twitter, follow them at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. I'm Leslie Marshall. Back. More talk about free trade. More talk about Biden and trade. We 
We are back on Leslie Marshall. Happy Friday and happy to have Scott Paul with us. He's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And we are, and I, and I said during the break, I think I tripped over my own tongue there, the website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow them on Twitter. Keep it made in USA. Good idea, right? President wants to do that. Uh, Scott Paul, follow him at Scott Paul AAM. Scott, thank you for holding. Uh, welcome back. We were talking about free trade, and I, because you know we are such a divided nation uh, among so many lines, po- politics especially, and DC certainly is divided. I mean, we have a 50-50 Senate, um, and sometimes Republicans vote against things simply because they want to vote with their party and vote against the power of the party in power. And we sometimes see Democrats do that, although as a Democrat, I'm a little biased and I don't think as much. Um, But our political parties uh, on the left and and the right, um, you know, with the president and shifting away from this conventional uh, view that um, we, you know, uh, that we just have to speed up the flow of goods and services to lift economic growth. And it doesn't matter if it's not truly free or not truly a fair and free trade deal. Yes, and I think this is the um, th- this is the issue that I, th- I think the political punditry class has a hard time understanding. Just because I mean, trade policy is esoteric; it's full of acronyms and philosophies, and it, it's 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 not as easy to explain as like kind of gun control or uh, education or healthcare or immigration, something that that people see on the news a lot. And um, but something has been happening kind of simmering under the surface for a while. And that's that voters in both parties have been more and more skeptical of this old consensus of free trade. And you saw evidence of that a lot with kind of think of Bernie Sanders back in 2016 and the support that he generated. And obviously think of Donald Trump, you know, you know, who, uh, you know, almost the entire rest of the Republican field uh, that he beat back in 2016 was very free trade oriented. Mm. He was kind of like the outlier. He and Bernie Sanders, honestly, sound a lot alike on, on trade policy, and, and there was something to that. And then, you know, again, Trump took some actions. Um, I give him credit for recognizing and raising these issues. I think he had ulterior motives and wanted to, as part of kind of his blame culture, that, that, that he liked to... Um, instill in in people. But underneath the surface of it all was this, I think, deep understanding that in these communities all across the country that had seen the impacts of this, that had seen factories close down or move away, um, and and the impact that had on their communities, whether it was the downtown kind of going downhill, the schools going downhill, public services, uh, more opioids in the community. I mean, there were a lot of more divorce. There was a a lot of social... Uh, a lot of social consequences to all of this. Um, you know, Biden and Leslie, you mentioned he was from Scranton, and I think this is a good point. I think that even though over his Senate career, he didn't necessarily vote what I would say the right way on trade policy, mm-hmm. I do think that he came to understand what this meant for some of these blue collar communities. And he really took that to heart. And his trade platform for 2020 was a very Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren like trade platform, and one that was infused with the ideas of the labor movement and of working people and of a lot of the issues that I think that we hold near and dear. And, you know, his appointments uh, have generally, I think, reflected that Mm. as well. And certainly 
coming out of the gates, he said, look, I'm not going to rush to get rid of the tariffs that Trump put in place. I want to, I mean, China does have to reform. Uh, and he's 100% right about that. I don't want to rush into free trade agreements because we have to make our own workers, our own co economy more competitive. And we have to build a better safety net if workers lose, do lose their job so that there's not this guaranteed downward spiral that so many of them and their families and their communities face. And so ha having and I, I know this because I see on my Twitter feed a lot of the corporate lobbyists or trade reporters who are very cynical about all of this were like, oh, my God, that can't be. He, he's just saying this during the campaign. He's actually not going to do this stuff. Um, and it turns out he is <laughs> going to do a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, very, very and, true. And, and he takes it very seriously. Right. Yeah. And, and so I, I just, you know, and I think there's a political reason for that, which is that Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, very, very important for the success of the Democratic Party. But I think more than that, it's about his values and about working people and understanding that this has been part of the problem uh, and that it does need to change. And so I, you know, his, his administration has sent all of the right signals for the first 50 some days that they've been in office on this. You had mentioned uh, Catherine Tai. You said she's a, a friend, a friend of workers. Uh, that's uh, the president's nominee to run the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Um, she received broad support uh, going back to the bipartisan point. Uh, I want to point out when she was confirmed this week, it was a 98 to zero vote. She's the first of Joe Biden's nominees to win unanimous support from those voting. In your experience with trade specifically, if there is broad support like this, and this is the biggest support of, of, of anybody he's put forth as a nominee uh, to run anything. Um, is it typically that Republicans, as an example right now, sorry, because they're not in power, uh, is it typical that Republicans, they like her and they'll vote to nominate her and give her a thumbs up, but then fight the Democrats and her when it comes to policy? Or do they tend to want to work in a bipartisan manner when they like the person steering the ship in that department? That, that is a great question. And, you know, there, there were only a handful of issues that Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump were able to work on together. And one of those was trade. Um, you know, first there was the China component and Pelosi had a lot of concerns about China. And the second thing was the revising the NAFTA into the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. And uh, Pelosi and Trump worked together on that. And who was the, the key Democratic staff person who did that? It was Catherine Tai, basically. And so there is this ability, and, and the, the, I, I guess the, the, the reverse was true in the Trump administration, that Bob Lighthizer, who was the trade ambassador, um, was obviously not a diverse election, was an older white man, kind of like Trump. He also had the ability to cross aisles and to work with Democrats. And so I think that's a trait that is being passed along that is very, that will come in handy. And th these fights will be tough. And I do think that there will be Republicans who are going to push Biden uh, and who are going to be very belligerent against China for a lot of different reasons. And Biden may not want to go that far. Uh, but I do think that he will find bipartisan support for measures that are going to confront China on its unfair trade practices. And uh, that's going to be a consistent thread that you see moving forward with U.S. trade policy. Well, I like that you brought up um, that 
you know, a lot of people when they come into office, and some would argue Joe Biden did with executive orders, but when it came to things like, okay, we're going to stop building that wall. That's just money being wasted. Um, you know, we we got to, you know, stop demonizing, you know, Muslim uh, nations from coming to the United States. And, you know, he did that, you know, but he didn't, like you say, um, scale back the hefty tariffs on foreign products that were placed by Trump. And what I love is uh, the promise by the president, which is to review the impact that the past trade policies have had, as you mentioned, on economic and racial inequality, put negotiating new trade deals on the back burner because he wants to focus on what did he say? First, get COVID behind us, get those shots in the arms, right? Get the kids back to schools. And second, we got to improve our domestic economy. We'll deal with you later, uh, China. Uh, I, I like that. We're going to be back with Scott Paul. We'll be back with you. When we come back, we're going to talk about a lot more, so don't go away, uh, with regard to uh, trade, infrastructure. We are back on Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. And we welcome back Scott Paul. He is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And like I said, the website is AmericanManufacturing.org. On Twitter, follow them at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Scott, thank you for holding welcome back. Well, COVID relief is done, at least legislatively. Um, and up next, uh, there are two big things, and uh, I know two things you like to talk about and I like to learn from you about in the AAM about. Uh, that's infrastructure investment and taking on China. Now, I got to say, if anybody can get infrastructure done, I do think it's Joe Biden. What do you say? <laughs> I think you're right. Um, I mean, obviously, there are some obstacles that may stand in the way. I mean, if there's partisan politics that enter into this. It makes it more difficult uh, to achieve, and Democrats may need to look at doing it through reconciliation process, where it takes just a majority as opposed to 60 votes. Um, but look, roads are not Republican or Democratic. You know, water systems aren't Republican or Democratic. Everybody uh, utilizes them in broadband and schools and um, the energy grid uh, and, and all of that. And so I think that there is an immense interest in understanding uh, that we need to rebuild the United States. We've deferred this for too long. And that this, these are resources that will have some return for our economy and our, and our taxpayers in, in, in years to come if we do this. So work has begun, and it looks like in the House of Representatives, um, they'll do it first there. And some, uh, Secretary Buttigieg is going to be uh, up on Capitol Hill this coming, uh, maybe virtually, but up on Capitol Hill this week uh, with the Transportation Infrastructure Committee uh, to start talking about the administration's priorities on this. And I bet that in the House of Representatives, uh, they get a bill done uh, within the next, um, I would say, six to eight weeks uh, or, mm -hmm. or so. That seems pretty reasonable to me where there's uh, a, a, a trillion or a multi-trillion dollar investment package in broad infrastructure that also includes a clean energy future for, for, for the United States. Um, and what I always like to point out is, that, again, you know, we talked in the last segment about how trade overlap Democrats and Republicans. Right. Now, now, this is an issue where there's a lot of what I would call interest group overlap. I mean, the, the labor movement infrastructure is a priority. 
the U.S. Chamber of Commerce infrastructure is a priority. They agree on like three issues <laughs> and, and they disagree on like 97. Mm. And so I think that is helpful to try to get things done. And the last thing I will say, and this may be an unpopular opinion, but you know, the, both the, the, the House of Representatives and uh, the Congress is reinstituting what are called earmarks, which is members of Congress saying, well, this is the transportation project. I think merits some funding in my own district. And there's been a lot of push and pull about that, about why it makes sense or why it doesn't. I generally do think that members of Congress have a pretty good sense of, of what's good for their own districts. Um, yeah. And so I think that in a if lot they, of If ways, they listen to their constituents. If they listen, <laughs> right. If they listen to their constituents. But I would call earmarks kind of the WD-40 of the legislative process. They're going to get things unstuck. And it's a lot harder to vote against something if you know you have resources that are going to become available to your district right. to fix a problem that's been around for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And if you can finally get that done, uh, that's not a partisan thing. That's doing your job. And so I, I am, I'm more hopeful than I ever have been on infrastructure that we have a path forward to, to get a, a major investment done uh, this year. Well, the president's plan, as we've talked about before, this is the Build Back Better plan. Um, and you had mentioned the the price tag, $2 trillion to rebuild infrastructure. Some people say that's not enough, but $2 trillion to rebuild. And also, you mentioned clean energy, and they want to pivot to a clean energy future. Which of those or both is the biggest stumbling block when you have a 50-50 Senate uh, and 50% of that Senate's Republican? Yeah. So, so the big stumbling blocks are these. N number one is like, well, how do you pay for it? And do you borrow the money? Do you raise taxes? If you do raise them, is it on wealthy earners and big corporations? Um, or do you offset it with spending cuts elsewhere? Well, it seems highly unlikely that they'd offset this with spending cuts elsewhere. It seems possible if they go the route where they only need 50 votes to pass this or 51 uh, with Kamala Harris as vice president that something with respect to corporate taxes or uh, raising taxes on, on high earners uh, might be a possibility. And then borrowing, which the federal government has done regularly uh, for, for the last couple of, of decades, uh, I, I think is the most sensible option in part because it is so cheap to do it. It, it. it is very cheap. The interest rates are so low. And again, this is something that you know, an investment that has a long-term return to the uh, a long-term return to the United States. So, mm -hmm. if you build a better road, that's going to make our economy more efficient for a long time, or a transit system, or anything like that. And so, there's a return that comes back, uh, you know, over the long term and over the short term because it creates construction jobs, it creates manufacturing jobs for all the materials you need, uh, and so there is this return. Um, so, so that with respect to the other stumbling block, which may be clean energy, um, it's interesting, you know, a lot of Republicans may not believe, Republican lawmakers may not believe in man-made climate change or think that it needs to be, be remediated in any way. But they also come from some states that are heavily invested in wind and solar right now. I think of like Texas yeah. as a great example, or Arizona, or some of these other places, and, and is creating jobs in the local economy. And so I do think that there is also uh, an opportunity there. And the one thing Biden has done, I think, very smartly, he has cast the infrastructure investment as a competitiveness plan to counter China's rise. 
Like China's doing all this stuff. They have high-speed rail. They have crazy modern airports. They have this uh, you know, new infrastructure that has been built out, and we're lagging behind. And we can't mm-hmm. afford that if we want to be competitive uh, in the global marketplace for the, for the years to come. And so I do think that that's a frame that's harder for Republicans to walk away from and say, no, I'm not interested in, in making us more competitive. Um, I, I don't know that they can get away with that. Then again, <laughs> overwhelming majority of Americans and a majority of uh, Republican, not majority, almost what was it? Well, one poll was 47 percent, but one was like 72 percent. So it depends on how the question is, is framed, um, supported uh, COVID relief, supported stimulus checks, supported state and local government getting money, schools getting money. Um, and uh, opening up more and having money to open up more vaccination centers so we could get, look, you know, uh, the president did it in almost half the time, uh, you know, the number that he wanted, the millions of vaccines he wanted in our arms. And uh, he's now, you know, he's doubling down, you know, on these numbers now. So, so is the bigger hurdle with this purely political? Because when you have bipartisan support for an infrastructure investment package, um, and you've had it for years, right? Um, so, so two questions. One, considering no Republican voted for the COVID-19 package, um, could it be that they are just going to vote against this? Because even though it's bipartisan, it would help their people. It would help their state. It would help, you know, their district if they're a House member um, or districts. Um, it, it, then, it, you know, it obviously with COVID, they really didn't care about their bid for re-election with that. Would they possibly do that again? One. And what has been the obstacle since it's been such a, a, a measure? Almost everybody goes, oh, infrastructure. Everybody wants, you know, improved bridges and, you know, roadways. And like you said, there are a lot of other things that come into national security comes into play with infrastructure. So what's prevented it years behind us? And could this be a stumbling block when you look at the fact that no Republican voted for the COVID-19 package? Yeah. Yeah, well, look, it certainly could be a stumbling block. Um, and if they, if, if some Republicans want to make this a partisan exercise, then, you know, it's a foregone conclusion, the, the way in which Democrats are going to have to approach this. Right. Because, they're, they're willing to go it alone. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so um, I, I, th- I think the, the, the larger issue that has prevented this from crossing the finish line in the past has been a lack of executive leadership. And so, you know, Trump talked about infrastructure. You know, he said, oh, I want to, I'm a builder. I want to do this. But the infrastructure weeks uh, were a joke. He, he would step over his own message. He wouldn't even talk about it. He, he didn't, you know, he didn't have a real plan. Um, and he didn't like lean on Republicans either. I, I, I think these are much different circumstances now because you have an administration that's going to be out there pushing this forward. And there is the opportunity, I think, on some of this to at least make overtures to Republicans because this isn't, I mean, I mean, road building, you know, I mean, infrastructure, I'm old enough and I worked on Capitol Hill back in the 1990s to remember, this thing used to pass overwhelmingly, yes. you know, with, with Republican support. I do think that's still possible. But again, I, you know, it could be the politics that are standing in the way of this because they're big, inter- I mean, like Chamber of Commerce, you know, supports lots of Republicans. They want to do this. And, and yeah. so Republicans are even saying no to the Chamber of Commerce again after saying no to them on the COVID relief, which they support as well. I, I mean, that might be a little untenable for them. I don't know. 
We're going to take a quick break. We'll be get back with Scott Paul. We're going to talk China, China, and more China when we come back. Don't go away. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. He is Scott Paul, president of the AAM. And like I said, you can follow them on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. Follow him at Scott Paul AAM. And the website is AmericanManufacturing.org. Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Hours always fly by because I enjoy talking to you. I learn uh, from talking to you. And I know that our listeners and our viewers do as well. Um Let's talk China, a couple of areas with China. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is expected to introduce legislation in the coming days. And that legislation, he said, is aimed at countering China's economic influence, including uh, big investments in U.S. manufacturing uh, and the supply chains. This is another area where there is growing bipartisan support for industrial policy uh, like this. It, it seems that voters and it seems like politicians on both sides want Washington to take on China. Um, is uh, is Joe Biden the guy uh, for the, the job? I mean, right now, uh, you know, not just because of COVID, but as we've seen, you know, just, you know, it, it coming, there's been a global semiconductor shortage. One of my brothers who uh, was a chemistry major and is kind of like a chemical engineer. He works in some, the semiconductor business. So I actually know a bit more about that than the average bear. Um, but let, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that shortage, industrial policy, bipartisan support for that, and uh, the uh, the aim to counter China's economic influence uh, for Washington to take on China. Absolutely, Leslie. And I, I just want to preface all of this by stating something that should be obvious, but that this is in no way, this is about the actions of the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing, you know, which oppresses dissidents and free speech and does all this. This has nothing love, to wait do- Wait a minute. And in light of what we're dealing yeah. with in this country, yeah. 150% increase in attacks on Asian Americans. Yeah. I'm getting like emotional with the fact that yeah. that you pointed that out. That was lovely. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this is not the Chinese people. Right. This is not and, Chinese people here. Uh, this is not the nation of these people who are clearly oppressed under this regime. Uh, uh, we've seen the uh, the right. inhumane treatment of not only, uh, I mean, of its citizens, but certainly uh, the Uyghurs, concentration camps. I mean, the list goes on. Uh, so, uh, sorry to jump. No, no, that, that's absolutely right. And it's just, you know, Trump stoked a lot of that with uh, with his rhetoric. And I, I want to be just absolutely clear that this is that that is all a blunt, and that we, we need to protect the rights of uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders, and that these hate crimes and these attacks that are occurring all over the country they they've got to stop. Absolutely. Um, the policy with respect to the Chinese government is something that is entirely different. And it impacts all of us because, th- we're, once again, we're talking about American values here. We value democracy. We value human rights. Uh, we value economic freedom. Um, and we value fair competition. And it, we're not going to change China. We're not going to change the Beijing government's behavior. That, that's going to happen in, internally uh, you know, through, through a process if it ever happens. But there are things that we can and must do uh, on our own to make sure 
that American values, which are held by our immigrants as well, are upheld. And uh, these include pushing back when we see China trying to uh, oppress folks in Hong Kong or the genocide against the Uyghurs and speak out against that, or um, the environmental degradation uh, that still takes place there, uh, or the economic coercion, again, that their government practices with firms around the country. And, you know, we, we have, for a long time, and we, we talked about this earlier in the conversation, we just relied on this philosophy, the invisible hand, oh, this will all take care of itself. Well, it hasn't. And, and so, you know, Senator Schumer, and, and you know, what, what the Senate's going to get to work on, they, they may do some other things, but Senator Schumer has tasked like eight of his committees, and he said to his committee chairs, reach out to your Republicans, and we're going to put together a bill that will both hold China accountable for uh, the Chinese government accountable for some of its actions, and also make ourselves more competitive and more resilient against things like the semiconductor shortage that, that you pointed out, so that we have a more of a capacity to manufacture and innovate semiconductors uh, in the United States and the whole supply chain that goes along with that. And so the Senate's going to spend the next couple of months or the next couple of weeks, I don't know how long it's going to take, putting that together, uh, but it's going to be a competitive spectrum because we realize that in like 10 years, maybe, uh, China's economy uh, could be larger than ours. Its population is already much larger than ours. And Beijing's leaders, and Xi Jinping in particular, has, has, has grown a little bolder about stuff. And, and we, you know, we value our relationship with Taiwan. Uh, we value uh, democratic activists in Hong Kong. And we value our partnerships with Japan and Korea, uh, India, Australia. And what we certainly don't want to see is a belligerent and unchecked Chinese government it's going to do whatever it wants. And I'm, I'm not calling for war. I'm not calling for a cold war. I'm just going, let's, let's take some steps that are sensible here. We have to call the Chinese government out when it does things that go against international norms. Uh, and we also have to make ourselves more independent for high-tech goods. You know, I mean, we couldn't make a smartphone in this country right now if we had to. And, and that's a big problem, considering that a lot of that comes from China. And so I, I'm not saying that we need to put up walls or do anything like that, but we certainly have to figure out a way uh, to do this because we're great at designing things. We're great at innovating things, but we haven't cared a lick really about where they're manufactured. And that's starting to matter a lot more. So I'm glad the Senate is going to take this up uh, and is going to have a focus on this in the weeks ahead. And, and when the president held a meeting with uh, leaders from both parties, he said, quote, this is a critical area where Republicans and Democrats agree um, and this support for industrial policy, it, it, I mean, it's massive. It's much needed. It's a shift in Washington. Um, and I mean, the general consensus in both parties for decades, like you said, was let's a lot, like you said, let's allow for the offshoring of American jobs and industrial production. What can happen? Well, now we see what can happen. We're seeing the negative impacts of that consensus. Um, the U.S. share of global chip making shrunk from 37 percent in 1990 to 12% uh, today. That's a huge drop. Uh, and uh, there's bipartisan agreement that we need to bring uh, some of it back. But my thing is, heck, bring all of it back if you can. Um, policymakers need to move quickly on this. Um, I mean, China is in a very different situation with COVID. Um, 
and, uh, you know, the Chinese government and not giving us information, the Chinese government, want to be clear, not the people, uh, communist government, the regime, uh, did not give us information with regard to COVID. I mean, we lost some time there and we lost additional time with the uh, delay and mishandling of COVID with the last administration. So China's primed to take charge. Um, uh, Wall Street has talked about this. Wall Street has noted that. And, you know, how, how much does that cripple us in a sense or put us at a disadvantage, uh, Scott? Because, you know, and, and not only that, but the you have a communist government ordering its people, who many of which are, are brainwashed and know no other way to live, sadly, almost yeah. like the North Koreans, uh, under this regime, um, that you know they need to be number one and they want to be number one in manufacturing in the world. Uh, they want to be the economic superpower of the world. And we are enemy number one uh, in regard uh, to both of those areas or on both those fronts. So is it possible for us? I mean, are we crippled in this capacity with them? Because they do have a head start. Yeah, they, they undoubtedly have a head start in all of this. And part of it has been the reluctance that you described internally. Part of it is the actions that they have taken. I, I like America as an underdog, though. I think of our ability to scale up at the beginning of World War II and just turn out the arsenal of democracy. I think of our response to Sputnik and how um, we turned the space race into a force for good and technological development. I even think of things like soccer, where we're like, you know what, let's field a women's soccer team and they're going to kick butt around the world. And so we're, we're pretty good at figuring out ideas when we're, we're, when we're working from a position where we're playing catch up. And I do believe that's entirely possible for us to do right now. And, and I, again, I think that, like, you know, Todd Young from Indiana, Republican, is working with Senator Schumer on, on this uh, semiconductor issue. So this is something where I do think that we can work together and we can make some great progress. Um, we have less than a minute. I want to get your uh, final 60-second thoughts on the U.S.-China talks in Alaska, something, uh, lastly, that you would like to say. Yeah, and I, you know the, the the news is still breaking fr from that, but yeah, it's it's tough. But I admire what Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said because he was heavily criticized by the lead Chinese negotiator for saying, you know, there's a lot of problems with uh, the killing of African Americans in the United States. You you were, and, and he criticized the U.S. in a number of different ways. And and Blinken said, you know what, we are imperfect. We strive to be more perfect. We are capable of admitting our mistakes and trying to correct them. And I wish you had that same ability as well, instead of thinking that you're absolutely perfect and everything else is, is someone else's fault. And so it was a, I mean, it, these are going to be tough. These are going to be tough. But I think that, you know, the, the American values, the true American values can come shining through here. Uh, and we can build a better future for us and do this in a way that's not going to be belligerent or war provoking at all. I think it's awesome. Uh, have American values shine through, have a cleaner, greener uh, economy, cleaner, greener jobs and jobs uh, created in the process. Scott, you know, I adore you. AmericanManufacturing.org is the website. Keep it made in USA. Follow them at Keep It Made in USA on Twitter, the AAM, and follow Scott at Scott Paul, AAM. I'm Leslie Marshall. Mark Grimaldi's our executive producer. He is awesome as well. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. Hey, we get it. You don't want to be hearing a progressive commercial right now. So let us tell you something you do want to hear. You are powerful. You're a warrior who bathes in your enemy's tears. Then you step out of that refreshing tear bath and into a bathrobe that somehow looks good on you. Yeah. 
you can pull off a robe. There. Don't you feel better? You'll also feel better when you save money for driving safely with Snapshot from Progressive. Mmm, savings you can use to buy more robes. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Snapshot not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents. Are you a gig worker or self-employed? Womply has helped over 100,000 small businesses get a PPP stimulus loan, and you may qualify for up to $41,000 in 100% forgivable loans. The program ends soon and funds are limited. Apply now at womply.com apply. That's W-O-M-P-L-Y dot apply.